0: This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bite Size Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bytesizebio.com webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page.
1: Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio Web Seminar, which today is sponsored by Luminera, one of the most respected digital camera manufacturers in the scientific market. Luminera provides high quality scientific grade cameras complete with feature rich software packages at the best price to performance ratio in the market. Today's presentation is titled Getting Correct Color from Your Camera and is presented by Jerry Sedgwick founder and owner of Imaging and Analysis, LLC, based in St. Paul, Minnesota. Jerry Sedgwick is an imaging imaging and imaging workflow consultant and image forensics expert. Jerry wrote books on scientific imaging and quantitation, has authored and co-authored book chapters and articles with one of those in science. His consultations have led to streamlined, streamlined workflows with consistent color images, preclinical quantitative studies, which led to FDA approvals, and novel measurement solutions. Jerry directed a core facility at the University of Minnesota, built a confocal, taught at Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented at major scientific meetings. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have in the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Jerry at the end. So now, over to you, Jerry, for the presentation.
2: Thank you, Amanda. OK, so we're going to talk today about getting correct color from your camera. But what is correct color? And uh, that's something that I'll certainly get into. We'll talk about also how to use a color camera on a microscope. And then we'll talk about post-processing to further correct images uh, after you've acquired them. So. For microscopists, it's probably pretty obvious that correct color is exactly what matches the colors in the specimen when I saw it through the microscope to the colors on a monitor and then to colors in publication. If you use that as a definition, then generally from lots of people I've talked to, the conclusions about correct color are as follows. Well, the color doesn't match what's seen under the microscope, so it's never correct color isn't as important as sharpness contrast, and resolution color is the perceptual judgment of that one guy in my lab who's the expert or that one woman there isn't enough hours in the day for me to sit around and think about color and so I don't even wanna be bothered with it I'm gonna change this uh, argument or this discussion uh, and kinda turn it in a different direction because I could speak to you for about uh, Three hours just on color, and it probably in the end, I'm not going to change anyone's minds. But what I can talk about is what is important to science and medicine. So we all know that if we're doing science and if we're in medicine, that we need to do things that are reproducible, we need to do things that are consistent, we need to have accuracy in what we do, and some indirect things are that we need to have a perceived quality of work. In other words, we need to transmit to others that our work is very high quality, and no matter what you're doing, the results that you get, you need to persuade others are true. So you need to have results that are persuasive. In light of what's important, then, what is correct color? Well, something that's that's reproducible, it's consistent, it's accurate, It's has a high perceived quality, and it's persuasive, right? So uh, of those we're probably thinking more about well how accurate is it and, and like anything else there are degrees of accuracy. So how accurate can you be from a camera? Well lots of cameras use uh, this um, manner of collecting light, they have a filter that sits above the image sensor with detectors at each position that then translate into pixels. Uh, this particular filter is called a Bayer filter and you can see that it's composed of different colors. Uh, but think, of, when you start to think about it, if light goes through, if it's a red image and, or a red part of an image and the light goes through the red sensor and then strikes the sensor, if it goes through red then you're going to get probably a closer to correct color than if it goes through green. So you have to, the, the camera has to interpret color at each one of these positions, even though the, it has these uh, filters sitting in front of the sensor. Now the beauty is that these uh, filters aren't all that um, exact. They tend to have Gaussian profiles. And so some of the light from the blue leaks into the green and some of the green leaks into the red. So in order to get uh, the correct color, you have to determine that by interpolation. So you have to look at the, let's say you're measuring at R5, you then have to look at the the uh, uh, light that struck the sensor around it, and then determine what the color is for the Uh, next position uh, in so in doing that and you can do that either linearly by adding these all up and dividing by four by a median interpolation but these are real simple ways of doing this and and generally in this world uh, you end up having very complex algorithms and and you also have to remember that you're going to measure at each point as you work your way along uh, the uh, series of filters and sensors But on top of that, you have uh, light that provides what's called a color temperature, different color temperatures going from warm to cool, warm being down at the red-yellow range to cool up at the at the blue range. And and these light sources uh, are measured in degrees Kelvin and on a microscope as you turn the light up and down, uh, using a tungsten halogen lamp you can actually introduce these colors into your image and, and in so doing pollute the image. In this bottom image here you can see that it's mostly yellow because of the color temperature is not matched to uh, the way the camera is set up to the camera settings. At the top, however, uh, the color temperature is matched to the settings on the camera and that process is called white balancing. But you have to remember that if this, these aren't matched that you're going to pollute Uh, the colors that are uh, in your image and then you need to correct for them uh, through interpolation. And generally what you do is you do a kind of math where you take your uh, interpolation math results at each pixel and you add or subtract the known shift in overall color. And in talking about this you may have a microscope with an LED or xenon light source and those don't actually have uh, the same significant changes in color temperature as you uh, turn their light up and down. So really how accurate can you be from a camera? Well, as accurate as your interpolation method, as long as you don't uh, and as accurate as you can be given conditions of the coatings of the objectives, detritus in the path, quality of the lens, innumerable factors that that could uh, affect the quality or the colors of your, um, that you get on your camera from the specimen. Can you be more accurate? Yes. Yes, you can be more accurate by calibrating to known standards. Uh, If you calibrate images to known standards, uh, you can be uh, more likely to approach the uh, real color that you see through the microscope. Uh, And on top of that, if you actually view these colors uh, on monitors and you calibrate the monitors, you're more likely to see uh, the colors as you've collected them. So uh, currently, there's a company named DataColor that offers a calibration target called ChromaCal, and that is a target that has a set of colors. And, it, and uh, when you take an image of this, you can then uh, calibrate to that known set of colors. Uh, DataColor and other companies offer hardware calibration, and you can. And I would strongly recommend. <clears throat> Uh, hardware calibration uh, of your monitor and then you need to consistently view it in uh, the same conditions and so normally that's done in a darkened room um, and then I would uh, use uh, a kind of uh, technology for monitors called interline plane switching. Uh, the beauty of this kind of a monitor is you have a very wide viewing angle. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done this experiment but if you uh, raise your head up and then down you can see that the colors on your monitor actually change and so it's really useful to have this kind of a monitor and they've been going down in price so uh, this is this is really a useful thing to have and I really need to remind you that uh, that you're looking at images this is a huge part of what you're doing in either science or medicine and you're all willing to calibrate a pipette why wouldn't you be willing to calibrate a monitor Regardless of whether you're using a calibration standard or not, you're going to get better color if you have good microscope and imaging practices. So on a microscope uh, with 10x objectives and higher magnifications, you want to perform what's called curler illumination. And on a camera, you're going to want to white balance. If you have a calibration standard, use that. Uh, And for consistency, of course, you'd want to have proper focus. You'd want to have good exposure, uh, good color saturation, and we'll get to that later, and and perhaps uh, good contrast as well. So when you're using a microscope, what do you do? Well, first of all, you set the light uh, to a certain level. And if if the light level is too high, you can put neutral density filters in the way. Uh, and then you go through the process of setting curler illumination. so uh, when it comes to light attenuation, uh, again, remember that as you turn the light up and down, you change the color temperature. and so typically on microscopes, there's a manufacturer's default setting, and it's a good idea to use that setting uh, when you're actually um, in, when you're actually setting the light level. Um, once you have that light level. You need to leave it at the same level for the remainder of the session. And if you don't do that, you're going to start getting these color temperature shifts unless you constantly white balance on the camera. And we'll we'll get to that. Then you need to set the curler illumination. Uh, And I can't really, I mean, I'm going to go through this very quickly. I'm going to probably introduce lots of terms you've never heard. Uh, So at the end I'll direct you to a video that you can see where it becomes uh, very clear how you go about doing this. But basically the idea is that you choose the 10X objective at least to start with, close the field diaphragm, uh, you focus the field diaphragm blades as you look through the eyepiece uh, and then uh, focus them until you can see the edges of the blades clearly. And then you if it 's uh, not centered in your field of view, then you center the aperture with the neural knobs. You remove one eyepiece of the uh, of the microscope, look into the chamber, and then you adjust the condenser until the edges cover ten to twenty percent of the projected image, leaving eighty to ninety percent uh, visible. Replace the eyepiece and then you repeat this for each and every objective. Um, In in the ideal world, Uh, in the everyday world where you need to go fast, you may just keep it at uh, this position no matter which objective you're using, although you have to flip the condenser out of the way for 4x and 2x. So what does curler illumination do? Well, basically, it either narrows or expands uh, the column of light that's going up to your sample. Generally, you don't want it too broad and you don't want it too narrow. You want to find something that's in between and it's matched to the numeric aperture of your objective. What's Why Why would it be a problem if you didn't have it set correctly? You'll notice here uh, with the image on the left that it looks like how it's seen through the microscope but here the aperture was set too narrow, the light was collimated and now rather than having a, a muscle that the muscle area that looks uh, correct, you have a muscle area that looks like it has measles. So you've actually introduced uh, artifacts when you took this picture. Again, uh, like I said at the beginning, you can go to uh, Imaging and Analysis, go to the Instruction tab and you'll get a link that will take you to a YouTube section where you can then uh, see how to use a microscope for color bright field specimens, and it'll take you through curler illumination so now let's get to using a camera uh, and how do you do that for the best images from a microscope so first of all, when you use a camera, you need to get the camera functions set up so that you just do this once so that you have all the windows that you need uh, and then when you actually go in into a microscope session, you have to focus. You have to set the exposure, white balance, uh, and in that process, you may actually correct for uneven illumination, which is called flat field correction. And then you take a picture and uh, save it. So, here's the windows that I like to see uh, on the screen when I'm using a camera. One, I obviously want to see the screen that tells me where the or that gives me all of the settings so that I can I can work with them and uh, here I'm showing the settings uh, for resolution. This isn't the highest resolution of this camera it just so happens to be what I had it on. Uh, but it, this is really nice software, this is the Infinity software from Luminera. Uh All the options are in one window rather than having a lot of tabs. And then uh, I always want to see the histogram and I highly recommend that you open this up if it's available on your camera acquisition software. The histogram will show you the number of pixels you have at each brightness position, uh, going from dark at one end on the x-axis to bright on the other end.
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation.
2: Uh, on the camera setup, you want to put the gain at the default setting uh, for the um, camera and really that's because the gain if it's set, as it's set higher actually introduces some noise into the image and so it's good to keep that at the manufacturer's uh, default setting. And then the gamma really needs to be at 1 uh, and if nothing else, I really want you to drive home the point of the importance of gamma. In an image, what you want are going. What you want to do is go from dark to light in equal increments. That is called a linear relationship of grays or a, re, a linear image. And this isn't just grays; it could be colors or anything, right? And so, in the you don't want it to be nonlinear. You don't want it to be nonlinear. When it's nonlinear, you don't have uh, equal increments as you work your way from dark to light. Why don't you want it to be nonlinear? Because in the world that we're in, you often will say that something is darker or brighter than something else. And all people have to see is your image. And if your image is not showing them equal increments of darkness to lightness, then you're going to end up uh, with a nonlinear image. In, in and then I want to tell you a little bit about what gamma really is. Uh, actually, it's a reference to an exponent value uh, and you get that exponent by looking at the tone of each pixel because each pixel is going to be a fraction of what's called the bit depth and that's a term that's used to denote the number of grayscale values that are in your image in each red green and blue channel because you have three primaries that make up your color image so an example would be you have a pixel value of 128 and that's 128 over 255 for an 8-bit image which has 255 grayscale values once you make that into a decimal then a change in the gamma would just be an application of an one exponent value to all the tones in the image. So at the bottom you see an example. Would be 0.5 with a gamma of 0.8. Gammas, when you, when uh, manufacturers create uh, these gammas, it's a lot more complicated. The math is more complicated than this. This is really the simplest level of looking at gamma. So uh, on the so that's uh, that's gamma, and I and, and, and I also want to emphasize that just because you have a gamma of one does not necessarily mean you have a linear image. In fact, we I found in my own experience about fifty percent of cameras uh, not actually having a linear image, even though the gamma is set to one. So you have to be really careful with your camera manufacturers to make sure that that's the case. Uh, if you're doing densitometry measurements then you want to make sure you calibrate to a standard before you can present data that's accurate. So uh, once you, and then finally when you're doing your camera setup you want to work with saturation and focus. Uh, If your camera software has a way to highlight the saturated pixels you want to activate that. So what is a saturated pixel? A saturated pixel is something that's either overexposed or underexposed where there's no detail. You want to make sure that you keep your images with pixels that all have detail. Otherwise, you're throwing image information out. That's image data. You're actually removing data from your image. So it's critical that you make sure that you don't have any part of your image that's too white. And then you want to show a focus bar. And the focus bar, if it's available, uh, will actually give you a second indication of whether or not you're in focus. So you're actually taking pictures. You're first of all going to focus. Uh, as the meter as you get more bars it's more and more in focus if the sharpness that you see on the computer screen doesn't look quite as sharp as what you see through the objective it could be that the photo tube which is the tube that has lenses in it that carries the image up to your camera is of low quality you have dirt or debris on the lenses and in cheaper cameras they have what are called anti-aliasing and low-pass filters which actually slightly blur the image that's why scientific cameras are more expensive they they remove that uh, particular filter. And then uh, you'd want to set the exposure. Uh, You generally set the exposure by using a slider. Sometimes it's called shutter. Sometimes it's called brightness. There's various names for this. And then you use the gain just to fine tune the exposure. And then when you set the exposure, you want to make sure that you avoid oversaturation. And so you look at your histogram, especially at this very end, and you want to make sure that that doesn't touch the end of your uh, of your actual histogram box. Uh, in this particular camera with the luminera, the end is actually sitting right here. So you want that value. Uh, you don't want that value to be high enough, especially so high that would cause these red oversaturation saturation uh, highlights that indicate that you've uh, got pixels that are too white and you've overexposed. And then you'd want to white balance the image. Uh, in this software, you actually tell it what the uh, the light source type is, and then you can use one of two icons: one which is a global icon to set it, and the other one which uses a region of interest. Um, and I'll take you through that. And obviously, as I've shown before, uh, before white balancing, you'll have non-neutral backgrounds. Afterwards, you'll have backgrounds that are neutral. It will also help to get your colors to be uh, much more accurate. And then uh, if you have uneven illumination, in general you do at 10x, 4x, and 2x, you'd want to remove the slide, take a picture of just the blank image was just the light coming up called the flat field image. And then you use the camera acquisition software to correct for that. Or you may have to do it in post-processing, and you'd have to do it for each objective. And then you take the picture, and you'd save it. And then, of course, with all the different magnifications, you'd adjust the exposure only. You would not change the light level, and you'd fine tune with gain uh, if necessary. So I'm going to take you through this live uh, with a microscope, and we'll go through each one of the steps. Uh, This may take me just a second to get to the place where I need to be. And and here it is. First of all, I can uh, do something like focus this image. Um, I can do that uh by moving this up and down. You can see the focus meter moving, and then uh, I could adjust my exposure. Here I already know that I have uh the uh, the shutter set or the brightness set at the appropriate place. I'm going to actually increase it a little bit with the gain. If I go too far, you can see that I have the saturated pixels, so I'm going to back off. <clears throat> you can see that it's kind of blue. So I'm going to move to an area where it's blank, and then I'm going to uh, click on my white balance icon, and you can see I made it neutral. I'm going to move back to the same position uh, that I was at, and then I can take a picture, and I'd have an appropriate image. But in this particular image, you can see that it's a little bit dark at some edges and brighter at other edges. And so to correct for that, I would go off the slide entirely. And then uh, and, and this red is coming in because I have, uh, unfortunately, some uh, light, uh, I have, I'm using the microscope in a uh, room that has light uh, issues. Uh, the sun keeps coming in and out. But what I would do then uh, is I would go down to my flat field correction. I would generate an image. And then, and then from that point forward, I would uh, use my options to then use that flat field image to enable a correction. Now when I go back to my uh, same place, I've corrected the image so that it's even illumination all the way across and it's fabulous. So, uh, and I could bring the gain up a little bit now
0: uh, just to brighten it slightly and then I take the picture. And then when I want to save that picture, I would want to save it then as a TIFF file uh,
2: instead of a JPEG, because a TIFF file will retain all of the information of the image. The JPEG will compress it and actually throw some image data out. So the TIFF file is the way I want to save that. OK. Now we, after taking your images, you'd want to post-process. Now why would you do that? Uh, it, no matter how good you are and no matter how careful you you might be, you are going to get some subtle differences, sometimes subtle, sometimes more pronounced, uh, both in white balance and in exposure, as you can see here, with these particular images from two different sessions. So uh, I would normally take that then into a program called Bridge instead of Photoshop, uh, mostly because it goes a little bit faster. And Bridge comes with Photoshop in any version you got uh, that CS2 or later and here you can select the images uh, and then you can open them in another program called Camera Raw Uh, and once you do that you'll have a window that allows you to select all of the images. This little eyedropper tool becomes your white balance tool and you click on a neutral area in order to white balance and then you would adjust your whites and your blacks uh, to fine tune the exposure and the blacks actually to increase or decrease the contrast. And then if you wanted to brighten the colors, you could use saturation. So, uh, and then there's a, a another feature where you have icons in either side of the histogram that are at the top, and those will actually light up if you over or under saturate. So it prevents you from then throwing away data from over and under saturation. So you would want to then, uh, and, and I just want to make a point out of all the all the uh, features that you have over here in the uh, raw cam- or Camera Raw uh, dialog box, that you have these, that the only two you really should be using are the whites and the black sliders, because these retain the linearity of the image. And of course, it assumes that the original image is linear. And so uh, I'll go and show you uh, how you would go about doing that in Bridge. So if I
0: chose uh, three images here, I could open those up uh, in Camera Raw, and then in Camera Raw, I can, uh, I'll can i get the window that
2: I just showed you. I could select the whole thing and then use the eyedropper tool to choose an area. If I choose the wrong area, uh, these will go too far, and you can see that I've oversaturated uh... but i'm going to choose uh... an area that's uh, uh, sort of in this here so you can see that it's somewhat subjective in fact it's very subjective But you have to keep doing it until it looks right and then i can increase the whites if i go too far it creates uh... a yellow marker up here to tell me i have oversaturated i can actually uh... come back to uh... a point where then i could uh feel comfortable that I'm going to have all of my image information and not thrown any away. You can see on the histogram that uh, that the blacks are plenty black and that I don't really need to adjust that because because this histogram goes all the way across the dynamic range but if I wanted to do that I could move this in one direction or the other. Uh, And then finally if I wanted to saturate the image I could make it very bright and as you can see that's quite neon or I can reduce the uh, brightness of the image. Uh, generally, this is not used unless there is somebody in the image in the in your lab who absolutely insists that one color is correct <clears throat> and the other isn't. Saturation, in my own experience, is really the only thing that needs to be changed when somebody believes that it's the wrong color. And then, if you have ra- dramatically different images, like I do here, you're going to have to do each one of these one by one and set each one. Uh, uh... individually uh... according to its white value and uh... and its contrast and and that's the way you would go about uh... correcting an image and again i say this is this is not manipulating this is really just correcting the image it's okay to expand the dynamic range and that's kind of expected when working with when working with images now I can save the image, and once I save the image, that prevent I'd save it as a TIFF, and uh, by saving it, I actually can prevent saving over the original by giving it another name. And then that way, I save my original, which is critical because you may have a reviewer who wants to see the original image and doesn't want to see the image that you've corrected, and you'll have that original image and it won't get
0: lost. So that's a, a critical thing that you need to do when you're doing um, uh, When you're doing imaging, if instead you go to a system where you're actually correcting to a calibrated
2: standard, you would go into a program uh, uh, that would be provided if you bought the ChromaCal uh, slide and system. Uh, It has several advantages over Photoshop and Bridge. One, it does check your camera for linearity, and so you know that the camera's linear and the Luminara, by the way, is linear at a gamma of one. It doesn't require uh, the user to activate any kind of a history log that would keep track of what you've done to the image, and that's what's in Photoshop. Uh, In Bridge, you just, you don't save over your original image and that preserves the original. Um, And then you you can't uh, save over the original image in in Chromacal, uh, even if you make a mistake, you're never going to save over an original image. It performs the white balance and brightness steps automatically. You don't have to go in and set it yourself. It allows uh, only linear contrast adjustments. It doesn't give you all uh, a bunch of other adjustments that change the linearity except for the saturation slider. And it shows before and after side by side. So to use that, you'd acquire an image of the calibration slide you'd get with that product. Uh, you open the calibration slide image in the ChromaCal software and then you align the calibration circles to the grid overlay. Um, you would then batch process using batch multiple images button um, and uh, it goes pretty fast. You just select where you want the images to come from and where you want them to go when you're done and uh, I can show you this as well. So. Uh,
0: Uh, Again, I'm going to to, uh, eliminate some of my other windows just so it's easier to see. Uh, And So in this program, I would first of all open my calibration slide, uh, and here I
2: have it, and it automatically remembered the last time I aligned it so I don't have to align it. I can batch multiple images. I could select my source image folder. In this instance, it's this, this folder. My destination, I'm going to put it in the same place. And then I simply click. And then if I click on it, you could see where it's the before, where it's the after. And I can look at each image and investigate them before I get going. And then I can simply process the images. And it'll save the images in such a way that uh I will end up with uh images that aren't saved over but instead um are uh given a different title, so uh my images will then have uh, chroma calibrated after them for the ones that have been corrected with chromacal, and on each of those images within the image itself, you'll see that there's also that it saves all of the uh settings that uh, it applied to the image so you have that as a record, as a permanent log. So that was a quick run-through. That was a quick run-through of correct color. And I just want you to to remember that correct color involves not just accuracy, but also reproducibility, consistency, quality, and some kind of way of persuading others uh, microscopes need to be set up for curler illumination and to a single brightness level. Gamma is best set at linear and again, you have to know whether or not your camera is linear, especially if you're doing densitometry and you haven't calibrated against the standard. Um, and uh, it's, even if you change the gamma later, at least you started with sort of the raw image at the, at, at the correct relationship of uh, dark to bright Uh, tones. The camera histograms and saturation warnings uh, avoid pixels that are um, uh, too bright or too dark. Uh, You can do camera white balancing to improve overall color. Flat field correction provides even illumination. Post processing is often necessary to correct images. Expanding histograms to fill the dynamic range is acceptable and uh, uh, the calibration software and devices leads to the greatest possibility for accurate consistent and high quality images. Thank you very much for coming. Um, you can contact me at, at com, or come to go to my webpage
0: at imagingandanalysis.com. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks Jerry. That was an excellent presentation. We have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So, you talked about Gamma. Could you remind us why that's so important?
2: Yeah, again, uh, the Gamma is important because you want to be able to show your viewers, anybody who's looking at your images, especially if you're Uh, talking about whether something's darker or brighter than something else. You want to make sure that they see that appropriately in the image.
1: So many scientists believe that images should not be post-processed at all. Could you go over your views again?
2: Sure. Um, There is an acceptance within the community, and again, uh, you'd have to check with guidelines when you go to publication to be absolutely certain uh, that that particular publication is okay with uh, the extent of corrections that I'm talking about uh, but in general uh, guidelines for publications allow for expanding uh, the histogram within the dynamic range meaning that you can darken or brighten your image so that it fits within that histogram that I showed you so that so that so that you it, it could be it could be brighter and darker, but just so long as it isn't too bright or too dark, and so that's that's acceptable. When it comes to changing things like saturation, to your point of view, uh, there really I have never yet run across any any kind of uh, literature or, or guidelines that uh, address that particular uh, function. Um, all I can say is that it's it's a rather subjective. Uh, interpretation um, and uh, I would recommend calibrating to a standard uh, which is a much more objective way of going about it.
1: Okay, Thank you. And so um, Mark asks, does color correction have any um, or does correct color have any impact in image analysis?
2: Oh, what a great question. Absolutely. Um, you know, when, when you uh, uh, especially if you're doing morphometry, so you're looking at area, you're looking at length, you're looking at, uh, you know, uh, shape and that sort of thing, it's really useful to have not only the colors be well separated but to also have the colors uh, very consistent so that when you measure from one session to another you're you're getting uh, uh, really consistent uh, results from your measurements.
1: Okay, and then I have another, I have a question from Andreas. So how do you deal with the fluorescence problem using different filters? Because sometimes fluorescence comes through a filter, because the excitation and wavelengths are broad and overlap. So the green filter also shows red fluorescence.
2: Oh, I didn't expect this to be questions about fluorescence. (laughs) (laughs) Since I'm only addressing Brightfield. Uh, uh, So, you're talking about bleed through so you're getting bleed through from uh, green and to red and so on right that that's what it sounds yeah. like and so mm-hmm. so really uh, there's a couple of ways of solving that problem um, one is to go to Chroma and to other companies and get very narrow wavelength filters and so what you really need is to is to go to those companies and get to get really Strong cutoffs, so that you're only getting uh wavelengths within uh, a very narrow region that's one way of solving the problem uh The second way of solving the problem is to run a lambda scan in other words, see what the overlap is, and then later on you can do some some kind of um, uh, uh, some kind of uh, all of a sudden the term i've I've lost the term but you can subtract out that that particular uh, part. That has bled through, Um, and uh, so so that's another method uh, for doing the same thing. And then the third method would be to uh, change your fluorophores if if that's a possibility to get fluorophores that uh, that aren't uh, quite so um, that that don't stain uh, non-specific areas uh, in ways that they. Uh, actually become too bright. This might also have to do with your bench technique and and, and things that have to do with uh, how you're fixing your samples and so that goes into a whole nother area uh, that you could pursue.
1: Thanks. And then I have one from, I'm sorry I'm going to mispronounce her name, Jagdeep. Um, he asks if densitometry analysis should be done before or after post-processing of images.
2: Oh, thank you for asking that question. Um, you should not post process images, period, uh if you if you uh are doing densitometry, Uh there's some minimal post processing that's acceptable. Uh and uh I've actually written a co-authored a paper where we did uh go through doing that after running it through ChromaCal, but you have to be very you have to be very uh careful about how you do that. I mean it it is perfectly appropriate to do a, a, a linear histogram correction, meaning that you would move the entire histogram so that so that all the images match in terms of brightness but you can't you have to be really careful about how you do that and usually it's a contrast brightness change and so that's something that that you have to be really careful about if in fact you run into the necessity of having to match images because you've taken images over more than one session of course the most ideal world you do it all in one session and and that's and then that's that you do no
0: post-processing and then you get your results
1: Okay, and um, I have one from Daniel. For the microscope setting, I'm not clear as to which settings to leave as default and which ones to adjust.
2: On the microscope settings, the, the the light attenuation, how far you turn up the light, that you need to leave at one setting, whatever setting that is you choose. And for the manufacturers, that default setting, uh, is is um, generally is indicated, uh, like on the Olympus, for an example, there's a little icon that tells you where to set it. Um, the problem you're going to find is that you, that you feel like you need to change the setting when you go back and forth looking at the eyepiece because all of a sudden the light becomes too dim or too bright. Uh, generally, that's why they put that icon there so that you have this sort of average light level that isn't going to blast you out if you go to lower magnification. But that's the one you want to keep. Uh, at the same place. Once you set up your curler illumination that's kept at the same place. It's on the camera that you make all the changes. That's where you make your exposure changes and where you change your gain and so on. Um, If if it turns out that you have to turn the light up and down just because you're on a kind of a, a scope that doesn't have neutral density filters or something like that, then you'll just have to constantly be going back and white balancing as you work your way along or you're going to decide well maybe I'll just take care of that in post-processing. So it, you kind of have to make a balance of that. You know before I continue on I, I, I do want to go back to the, dens- to the question about densitometry. I showed a method of changing the histogram where you stretch the histogram. That's not the method you use when you do densitometry. That method is called a linear histogram direction where you actually move the entire histogram along the x-axis and you don't stretch it. So I just want to be really careful that no one uses that method if they're doing densitometry and they need to match brightnesses over more than one microscopy session. But you really need to do some reading on that. You can't just casually get
0: started along those lines and you're welcome to write me.
1: Okay, and we have one other question. Um, does a gamma of one always guarantee a linear image?
2: No, and I, I, I hope I said that pretty clearly, that, that in fact I've been on too many cameras where you set the gamma of one and it turns out that uh, it, it doesn't uh, give give you a linear image. And again, that linear image is critical when you're talking about whether something's brighter or darker, and you're looking at the relationship of dark to light uh, in images, and uh, and, it's, and unless you do some kind of calibration to a standard and then correct for that problem uh, when doing uh you are going to get inaccurate results.
1: Okay, and I think that was our last question. So that brings us to the end of the seminar. So thank you again, Jerry, for a fascinating fascinating presentation and a great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsor, Luminera. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminar's page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There you can also see the other webinars we've lined up for you in Bitesize Bio's webinar festival. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Luminera and Bitesize Size Bio.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy to access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.